Good morning, and good morning again. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall, and we are here together again. I appreciate you and want you to know that it is a brand new day, but there are so many parts of what we want to leave behind and go into a brighter future that continue to live with us. The vestiges of this live with us, the vestiges and vestiges are remnants of another time. And as we look at the um, Palestinian situation, we see the vestiges when we look at our class-based system and we see the poor stay poor. We see these are vestiges when we look at the fact that there are still young people going into the summer, especially young people of color without jobs. And they know people in government, people in academia, this has been studied for a long time. When young people do not have jobs, they get in trouble. And when they get in trouble, there is going to be a loss of property and a loss of life. This is every single ethnic group from the beginning. And many of you remember back when you were very young and the trouble that you got into because you didn't have jobs, you didn't have community centers where you could take your energy. Uh, I live next to a park where the the kids play basketball from 6 o'clock in the morning and probably until 12 o'clock at night. And yes, that ball pounding on the pavement does irritate my nerves. But on the other side, I look at this. Thank you for putting that energy into a game of basketball as opposed to into trouble. The vestiges of denying young people employment learning a skill, having them active during the summer is something that we know then seeps into this whole sense that certain children of color are just bad to begin with. We have vestiges in a government that doesn't listen to the people, a government that appears to believe in our, in my focus in state and local government when it comes to this mask mandate or unmasking mandate there seems to be no dialogue with any people who are the regular people who are going to be getting COVID if it is going to be contracted on a wide scale. And the reason why I, I, I turn to this is because this frustration with state and local government, with being told what to do um, in a pandemic where our lives are the lives on the line I find that it's just um, frustrating to the nth degree. And it's a vestige of no matter what reformist person claims to be reformist or conservative, the whole sense is I'm big daddy and I know what's best for you and therefore you will do as I say. And that is it. And this is what gets me about law. One of the frustrations about law is so many have to be sued before they will change their ways. So many, and whether or not it's corporate America or in the government, they have to be sued, whether or not it's a civil rights organization, social justice organization, an organization with the greatest mission in the world. They have to be sued, even though they know what the right thing is. They won't do it until they are brought to court or at least threatened 
with uh, going to court. We think about these voting rights issues and once again the vestiges in voting rights. People who have decided because of the success of people of color who are voting, the success of, of young people, the success of coalitions being brought together, deciding what president they wanted in office, they then, those outside looking in from a standpoint of do they really want a democracy? No, they want white supremacy. And therefore, hundreds of laws have been passed. And so we have to now go to court around these hundreds of voter suppression laws that have been passed as vestiges of a time period when white men decided the fate of the rest of the community. And so many people want to go back to that time. And as we sit back and watch these things happen, you have to ask yourself, what can I do? Well, to be informed is one. To be informed is to be empowered. And if once one is empowered, you're inspired to go forward and not just make change for yourself and your family unit, your community, but try to make the world itself a better place. So I want to, to, to focus on two very quick things before we go after our musical break to Tahani Abushi, who is our DA of Manhattan candidate today. As you know, this has been an ongoing series in which I've been interviewing candidates for the District Attorney's Office of Manhattan, and Tahani Abushi is the candidate I am interviewing today. But before we get to this, I want to bring two things to your attention. One, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be taking up an abortion case in the fall when the new term begins that first week of October. And the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a very restrictive Louisiana abortion law by a five to four margin. However, that was during the time period of, of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now that we have a fundamentalist Christian on the U.S. Supreme Court in Amy Coney Barrett, we're still looking at or examining whether her stance is going to be one based on her religion or is it going to be based on the law. And the law that's being challenged right now is a Mississippi law. And we are going to see whether or not her stance that she, of course, during her interview for the position of U.S. Supreme Court Justice said very little where anything of substance was requested of her and her questioning. Um, I think that the concern is that as a fundamentalist Christian, that that was the reason why she was chosen for the court, that she was younger as a candidate and she would be on the court for a good 50 years and making sure that the conservative nationalist agenda would be fulfilled for her lifetime on the court. So we will begin to see if their investment in her is going to be sound. Um, another issue outside of that abortion issue, um, and we'll follow that as it goes forward in other cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, because their decisions for this term will be coming out between now and the end of June, and we will follow those decisions. But I want to turn very quickly to another issue that is of great concern to many and is of concern to me, and that is the masking of the unmasking. I am unsure and and many of you who have been in a situation in which 
we uh, have been traumatized by the COVID-19 pandemic, the millions of deaths globally that have taken place, loss of life, loss of income, loss of what we knew as our lifestyles um, because of what the COVID-19 um, pandemic uh, meant not just in the threat of human life, all of us around the world, when have we all been in one accord? This COVID-19 was something that hit the globe, not just our one community, but everyone around the world was affected by this. And now we have this, this CDC, Dr. Fauci, Governor Cuomo, unmasking, immediate unmasking, which is left us all very confused. And so I went to the, the Centers for Disease Control website, and I read from that now. Here's what I am looking at, and you can go to this website as well. It says COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective. You may have side effects. It typically takes two weeks after vaccination for the body to build protection immunity against the virus that causes COVID-19. You are not fully vaccinated until two weeks after the second dose of a two-dose vaccine or two weeks after a one-dose vaccine. People who have been fully vaccinated can start to do some of the things they had stopped doing because of the pandemic. Now, what we're hearing from our government and state as well as, as local officials is that it's okay not to wear a mask outside if you're fully vaccinated. And now it's okay not to wear a mask inside. And this is what um, Governor Cuomo seems to be saying to us. It's all right not to wear a mask inside if one is fully vaccinated. Now, if it takes two weeks after the vaccine to take effect, and if the vaccine, for, for example, um, Pfizer, the efficacy is 94%, how do you know if you're in the 6%? that has taken both doses and is, is still not fully protected from COVID and therefore not fully protected from giving others COVID. How do we know the two weeks has passed from the person not wearing the mask? How are we then being forced into not wearing a mask in many ways out of shame because now it's going to be, well, if you're wearing a mask, then you must be one of those people who did not choose to be vaccinated or fully vaccinated. And therefore, are you to be shunned? I am concerned about people who weren't wearing a mask when there was no vaccination possible. These people were not wearing a mask back then. So are we to assume when someone is not wearing a mask that they are, one, fully vaccinated, two, they have taken the two weeks necessary for the vaccine to take effect, and therefore they are in the 94% who cannot spread COVID-19. And I know of people who have been fully vaccinated and still developed COVID-19. I am wondering is this another ploy to take our attention away from other political concerns that are going on with our governor? I am concerned because the CDC website goes on to say, 
what we are still learning. And I quote, what we are still learning. We are still learning how well vaccines prevent you from spreading the virus that causes COVID-19 to others, even if you do not have symptoms. Early data show that vaccines help keep people with no symptoms from spreading COVID-19. We are still learning how long COVID-19 vaccines protect people. We are still learning how many people have to be vaccinated against COVID-19 before the population can be considered protected. Population immunity is what we're talking about here. We are still learning how effective the vaccines are against new variants of the virus that causes COVID-19. I've just read from the CDC website what they are still learning. And yet our government officials have chosen to tell us all to stop wearing masks and that we cannot spread COVID-19 if one is fully vaccinated with the two shots or with the one Johnson & Johnson shot. I'm concerned that this going into July 1st, opening up the city for political and financial reasons, Maybe Mary de, Mary de Blasio wants to open up the city as his final legacy to his promise that he would do so, so that when we go into our elections, he can say, I opened up New York City, I led us through this pandemic, and now here I am, the glorified leader. Is that why we're rushing into this? Because July 1st gives us July 4th as a time that could be the super spreader event that brings us all the way round to where we were before. More death, more destruction, more people in hospitals. We're putting our people in, in stores and in the front line of deciding whether or not there's going to be a mask mandate. So now they have to stand there as guards to make a determination whether or not somebody is fully vaccinated based on what? They're selling the cards on, on, on the Internet that this, this is just a little paper card that looks like anything. Somebody could just create themselves and, and sign. I am thinking of the total sense of inappropriate use of power of the government bully pulpit to force people into vaccinations. And I end with this point that Governor Cuomo has also stated that all State University of New York and City University of New York students must be vaccinated before they can go on to campus and attend school. I know of students who have said that they are afraid of the vaccine because it is an experimental drug and now they won't be able to continue their college educations. There is a great deal that's taking place. There should be at least a town hall. There should be some way in which our concerns can reach the government officials who are supposedly representing us. But no, what we're getting is a one-way unilateral barrage of information based on what they have decided at that particular time. And then we have to bear the brunt of the consequences for their decisions. And what are they to say later? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. Oh, we're saying this is based on science, but I'm on the CDC website. So, yes, it's based on science, but they're still trying to figure things out. Science is not 100% foolproof. So in this midst of so much confusion, 
I think that there should be at least a level of discussion with us, with we, the people. I'm going to turn to our musical break, and when I come back on the other side of it, we will be talking with candidate for the District Attorney's Office of Manhattan, Tahani Abushi. I'll be right back. Tony Bennett, The Good Life. And uh, The Good Life is what we would like to have. In order to do that, we have to feel safe and secure. We have to have economic and uh, criminal justice. We have to have a society that is fair and equitable. There are so many things that are required for The Good Life. And at this point, I'd like to turn this time on Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall over to Tahani Abushi. Good morning. Hello? Hello? Tahani? Yes, hello. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Gloria? I'm doing well. Um, I want us to jump right in, if you don't mind. So, Absolutely. Just want to... Yes, so here we are. Um, you can hear me? I can hear you well. Okay, thank you. So here we are in this um, DA race for the office of Manhattan um, DA, and 
what we know from the outside looking in and looking at the website for Cyrus Vance is that this is no ordinary office. This is no ordinary prosecutor's office. This is the prosecutor's office that's been at the heart of so many television shows and movies. It's the one that um, has a voice that's a national voice that is giving um, millions of dollars in, in around to grants to other prosecutorial offices and this is the office you want why do you want this office thank you so much for that question gloria you're right this is one of the most powerful and influential district attorney offices in the country uh, and it has not been leading the fight for criminal justice reform for me as a civil rights attorney my job for the last decade has been to identify abusive policies and practices and change them and that's what the district attorney is going to be expected to do is to make systemic change. And for me, this fight is personal because when I was a kid, around 14, my father was sentenced to 22 years in prison. And so my family's been on the receiving end of a decision a prosecutor has made. And that's the perspective that has been long been missing from this office and district attorney offices around the country. And so we need to ensure that we are electing somebody with that comprehensive, deep experience of making systemic change of understanding that the decision a prosecutor makes goes well beyond the four corners of that office, comes into our communities, and dictates the opportunities and obstacles that will come our way for generations to come. Well, let's now dig into that. At this point, how many people have you actually led before? We know that there are over a 1,000 employees at the Manhattan DA's office. What type of administrative experience do you have? Yeah, well, for me, we bring complex cases, complex litigation cases. And so all of my work has been in conjunction with working with investigators, experts, co-counsels, making sure that we take on large agencies like the NYPD or the fire department or the Department of Education. And so what the DA is going to be doing, it's not a one-woman show. We're going to have a team of people who are going to be in there furthering our vision of justice. And I think that's going to be important to ensure that we move this office away from the age-old prosecuting and convicting at all costs and pushing it into a new era of real reform uh, that speaks to public safety by ensuring the stability of the public. So that's what I've been doing uh, as a civil rights attorney, and I think that's the perspective we need in the DA's office. And when you say as a civil rights attorney, is this your own firm, and what's the name of that firm? Yeah, it's the Abushi Law Firm. Uh, it's a small family firm. It's been around for about 11 years now. And how many attorneys at that firm? Four. Okay. What I what I want to also understand is when we have people who, especially in my background for full disclosure, is as a civil rights attorney, um, when we have people who are seeking this office and seeking it, as you said, um, to make criminal justice reform, um, what types of reform do you see taking place if you become Manhattan DA? What types of reforms do I want to bring? Yes. Question? <clears throat> so a couple of things. I think first and foremost, we have to understand that we are going to be taking over an office that hasn't been told to do things differently in a long time. And so that means making sure that we are removing people that will be obstacles to making sure that our vision comes to, to fruition and bringing in a very strong transition team of people who are not just former prosecutors or have only ever been prosecutors, but educators, civil rights lawyers, public defenders, public health experts, to ensure that we're seeing this from a public health perspective. 
And one of the main things that I want to do is, you know, right now um, we have an early case assessment bureau. Most DA's offices have, and this is where that arrest paperwork comes through. And we decide what to charge, who to charge, and what penalty, if any, we'd recommend. And so this this uh, bureau is based on the notion that we have to charge something, right, as opposed to what happened here and how are we going to focus on making sure we're dismissing cases that should never have been brought, um, identifying police misconduct, identifying prosecutor misconduct, ensuring that we protect constitutional rights, and ensure that we have a focus on rehabilitation. So that's why I'm going to establish an arrest review unit that is going to do just that. And then on top of that, we're going to synthesize that data and make it publicly available so we can see what's working, what's not working, and then use our office as a bully pulpit to align with advocates and make sure that the legislature makes the necessary changes. Um, So I'm the public health perspective. Let's focus on that for right now. What, when you refer to a public health perspective, what do you mean by that? Well, right now a bulk of the cases prosecuted by the Manhattan district attorney office are misdemeanors and they're low level offenses really stemming from social inequities like, substance use disorder, homelessness, poverty, mental illness. And so while we are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on these low-level prosecutions, we can instead be using that money to invest resources to alleviate those issues. So, But the public health perspective, is that something that goes to the communities from which the, um, the, the people have come who are now um, within or been drawn into through arrest of the prosecutorial system. I'm still trying to tease out the, the public health perspective. I'm sorry, Gloria, I can't hear you too well. I, I'm trying to tease out the public health perspective and right. better understand um, the public health perspective. Is this based on the communities from which the people come who are now arrested and, be in, and within the prosecutorial system and being um, a, a part of this determination from this special unit of whether or not they're how or whether or not or how the prosecutors should go forward. I'm really interested in the, this yeah. public health perspective. Yeah, I think it's twofold, right? It's one having uh, our partners, a community-based organization <clears throat> that see the instability before it becomes our crime problem, right? Is this an issue of housing instability? or some kind of health instability, be it mental illness or substance use disorder. Um, And so we'll take, you know, homelessness, for instance. If we're going to prosecute people for uh, sleeping outside or for those who maybe commit petty offenses like stealing formula or diapers, you know, that is a bigger signal of something else going on and instability we missed before it became our crime problem. And so how do we alleviate those instabilities? And that, in turn, will help prevent these low-level offenses Um, and get people on their feet. And the same thing goes for the mental illness and the substance use disorder, where what we're essentially doing is criminalizing people for these struggles, um, as opposed to, again, addressing the actual root cause of what is happening here. Um, And that takes, you know, a longer conversation, a lot more effort than a knee-jerk reaction of just prosecute and then keep it moving. And as far as removing people, I think that's a very interesting perspective. Um, And once again, for full disclosure, I've been asking um, 
each candidate about uh, prosecutorial misconduct. And I want to yep. get in more into that. But when you say removing people, one of the concerns we have with government employees, especially those who belong to unions, is that it's very difficult to remove a government employee. Um, so how would you go about putting a system in place to remove people you find that are behaving or are, are shown to have behaved in a way that's outside of your agenda? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And all of my policies seek to ensure that we have a comprehensive uh, plan of how we're going to address not only systemic racism, but systemic misconduct. And I have a prosecutor accountability policy along with police accountability policy, because we know that bad policing allows for these bad prosecutions or wrongful convictions and prosecutions. And so they cover for one another. And we have to make this office independent. So first and foremost, we're going to set up an actual prosecutor accountability unit. It's going to operate just like my police accountability unit to make sure that we are uh, watching our ADAs. Are they complying with discovery? Are they turning over evidence? Are they playing fair? Second, for those that engage in misconduct, um, we will hold them accountable, reprimand them, put them under supervision. And for those that we find that have an established pattern and practice of this misconduct, then we will report them to the bar. Um, and hold them accountable because these decisions um, and this misconduct cannot be taken lightly. Not only are these positions of public trust, but you're impacting a person's life permanently. And so we cannot accept these kinds of misconducts, um, especially those that are deliberate. And I, I'm glad that you had a chance to actually uh, create um, this uh, accountability perspective, uh, the, the unit that you have, uh, as far as I've known, um, you're the first candidate to actually have um, something of this nature. Uh, my concern goes to the relationship between the prosecutor's office and the police departments. One of the reasons why we've had the, the failure of prosecutors um, to prosecute police departments and police people who have been known to not just um, abuse their authority, but uh, do so with brutality and sometimes with the um, loss of life of civilians. The relationship between the prosecutor's office and the police department, of course, is one in which they are highly interdependent. Um, the police do the legwork that brings the evidence to the prosecutor who then brings the case. How are we to bring trust to this relationship from the outside perspective if there's this continued interaction that has to take place in that way? Prosecutors don't go out into the community to find evidence themselves. What can be done differently as far as the relationship between the prosecutor's office and the police departments that could give some light between the two of them, but also at the same time renew or in some instances give some trust from the community back to the, the prosecutor's office? Absolutely, Gloria. And this is one of the, the main foundational points of, that are going, that's going to change under my administration. A part of my work as a civil rights attorney are uh, police accountability cases, uh, excessive force cases. And that's how we've been able to change policy. We've, I've sued the police commissioner and then sat across the table from him and rewrote policy. And so while we might work with the NYPD, we don't work for the NYPD. And we must hold them accountable. Again, this is just a great imbalance of power where... You know, a police officer has all the protections 
um, in the world afforded to them. And on the other end of that balance of power are civilians and whatever we have in our pocket. So I think it's important to make sure that the district attorney office um, separates themselves from police conduct to make sure that we are holding ourselves accountable by reviewing uh, paperwork that comes in from the NYPD and analyzing the NYPD officer who's involved and why was there a stop? What is the evidence? What is the background of this officer? And that's why for me in my police accountability unit, it's not just, hey, I'm going to find some officers whose integrity are in question and I'm going to put them on a list for you. We're going to go further than that. What is the history of this officer? What are the history of the allegations that have been made? Who are the people that have been impacted by these decisions? And then how do we get this officer off the force? Because, again, for positions of this, like this, of public trust that permanently impact people's lives, it cannot be taken lightly. And I think once we establish that the district attorney's office is not here to cover for bad policing because it makes for easier prosecutions, we're here to pursue justice and protect the public and root out systemic racism and put no badger bank account above the law. We've never had a DA that was independent um, from the police or from these power structures. And that's why having somebody with my background and my lived experience, even in all the cases that I've ever brought, will ensure that trust with the public that we will do that. Uh, the police officers in a civil case enjoy qualified immunity. Prosecutors right. enjoy absolute immunity. Are you willing right. to change that immunity standard for, for prosecutors? Absolutely. There should be no exceptions. In the positions that prosecutors hold, and how they can dictate a person's life for generations to come. It's just not something that should be swept under the rug. And this idea of qualified immunity or this idea behind of hiding behind an office, that it's not an individual making the decision, but it's this office, be it the NYPD or the district attorney's office, there are people behind these decisions. There are people that are establishing these policies that are allowing these abuses to happen. And we cannot look the other way. Let's turn to um, the work, the actual job, and, and I want to give you two questions that were sent in to me by my listeners. One of them deals with white-collar crime, and there's such a focus on um, street crimes, and that street crimes are very important. They're the ones that we see because they're dealing with the day-to-day -day people, regular people like ourselves. But the white-collar crimes rarely get that type of attention, and yet they're dealing with um, crimes of a, of a greater financial magnitude and sometimes <clears throat> of a criminal magnitude involving um, regular people as well. What is your focus on white-collar crime? Have you had a chance to think about that, given the fact that Wall Street is right here and we have um, all of these businesses of international um, reputations. Right. Um, what, what about white-collar crime, and why is it that we rarely see or hear? I know maybe it's not sexy enough for, for the news, <laughs> but we rarely see or hear about the white-collar crimes that are taking place in our right. midst. You know, I think the misconception is that white-collar crimes are victimless crimes, and that's just not true. White-collar crimes range from everything from the mortgage crisis that brought our country to its knees and stole homes from people who were paying their mortgages for decades and just fell on tough times. You know, white-collar crime includes wage theft, uh, especially from our immigrant community who leave their homes for 8, 10, 16 hours every day uh, and have their wages stolen, and people who are forced to work in unsafe conditions, um, Ponzi schemes, things that have wiped 
the retirement from our seniors who have spent their entire decades trying to create that retirement nest. And so we have to take white-collar crime serious because they do have victims behind these things, um, and they have jeopardized the stability of our country and the stability of our families. And so with Wall Street just around the corner from this office, it's imperative that we have somebody that is not beholden to those circles. And, you know, I'm sure you know we have a candidate in the race who is a Wall Street-backed billionaire, and that has caused great concerns for people in the race, not just in Manhattan, but across the city who are going to say, who are thinking, are we going to have another situation where our DA gets in there and continues to look the other way? Are victims of sexual assaults going to have to advocate for themselves because the person being accused is just too powerful and privileged? Um, is this corporation just way too big to do anything about, but it's easy to get the little guy um, that is stealing formula or that is doing something else? So I think that we have to prioritize it. It's a priority on my list, um, and it's an opportunity to ensure that, again, we put no badger bank account above the law. And the reason why our DA office in Manhattan is the richest, it is the richest, well-resourced DA um, office in the country because of seizures. And the seizure right. law is that property that is part of a crime can be seized. That property is then sold, and the the financial gain from selling that property goes to the DA's office. The DA of, DA's office then of Manhattan distributes this money around to other DA offices around the country as as little tokens sometimes or as incentives to change the ways in those prosecutorial um, uh, dis districts. Um, what do you think of the seizure uh, process that's now taken foothold and has given millions of dollars to the Manhattan DA's office? So I think there's two important uh, parts to the civil asset forfeiture. First, we have to stop the forfeiture of uh, civilian property that has not been linked to a crime. Right now, um, it could be anything from... Uh, loose change in a person's pocket to their watch, to the homes they live in, um, to their vehicles um, that really jeopardize the stability and interrupt their life without there any being proof that there was a nexus between that property and whatever is being alleged. So those low-level civil forfeitures will stop under my administration. Now, when we talk about white-collar crime and we talk about big corporations um, who have all the money in the world, this is an opportunity to garner settlements or to get asset forfeiture that we can then use those, that money to invest in the communities that were harmed by those actions. And I think that's the key here with civil asset forfeitures to say, how are we going to make people whole that were harmed from these actions? Can we make these corporations um, create community programs, after-school programs, bring back the arts, extracurricular activity? Can they commit to hiring people um, from a certain area or some, from a certain background? and get them to be civically engaged and to be part of creating the stability that they had jeopardized. I want to turn to national criminal justice reform. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill is still languishing. Have you had a chance to look at that bill, and is there any part of it that you would feel needs to be strengthened? And is there anything that you would add to it that you believe is missing? I've had a chance to look at the bill. I think it's very strong. Um, 
I think, you know, when we talk about police accountability, we have to look at our district attorneys and also ensure that they are committed to holding police accountable. Um, You know, when we look at many of the cases that we had to endure over the last year, particularly the Ahmad Arbery case, the district attorney or the county attorney in that case kicked it around hoping the public wouldn't hear about it. And it took three district attorneys to even have something done about the case. And even then, we've had to have uh, intervention. And so while we focus on police accountability and making sure that the laws do not restrict that access to accountability, we also have to make it incumbent upon district attorneys to be independent and to be fearless when it comes time to holding the police accountable. And I think that while it is languishing, like a lot of the criminal justice reforms before before um, they are passed, I think we can still ensure that district attorneys are acting on those policies now uh, and making sure we clear the road so that that legislature, uh, the legislation can pass. You spent four days securing the release of persons detained at the JFK airport during the time period of the Trump administration's Muslim ban. You're a board member of the Manhattan Community Board 10 and serve on St. John's University Legal Studies Advisory Board. You've been a board member of the New York Civil Liberties Union. When you're looking at the office of DA, there are so many people who have um, served the community in the ways in which you have. What makes you uniquely qualified for this job? You know, two things. One, we can't underestimate the lived experience. Having been on the other end of a decision the prosecutor has made, having been through incarceration, um, my family, all vacations and time off revolving around prison visits, trying to fight against becoming a statistics that say your family should be thrown away uh, is important because prosecutors don't balance that risk when we're making the decision to prosecute or incarcerate. We focus strictly on outdoing the harm that was done. And then there's no game plan for what happens to that community or that family or when that person comes back out into our into our neighborhood, right? And so what I'm doing here is expanding what we understand the role of a prosecutor to be and to put more responsibility and a comprehensive thought process on the decisions that we are making. That's what I do as a civil rights attorney is we overhaul systems and policies that are discriminatory, that are not working, that are jeopardizing the stability of our families, and we work towards an equitable solution, one where we have accountability for these systems of authority, but we're also focusing these reforms on how we're going to strengthen our families, ensure that there's safety and stability across the board. Um, That's what makes me qualified for this position. What we don't need is a better prosecutor. We don't need somebody that still wants to think about it, because there's a James Baldwin quote that I absolutely love, where he asks, how much time do you need for your progress? The more we wait for people to see us as human beings, the more we wait for people to prioritize the safety and stability of black and Latino communities as well, our families are being sacrificed. Our futures are being sacrificed. Wrongful convictions are popping up. Um, We have powerful and privileged people who are benefiting from the justice and mercy of that system. And have that access to that office. So while we're told to wait, other communities don't have to. And our futures are on hold. We can't allow that to happen anymore. 
And at this point, as I've asked all the candidates, why should our listeners who are residents of Manhattan vote for you? It's time for something different. And if you want something different, we have to elect something different. I've been fearless in the face of power, whether it was the NYPD or Trump. I've always been amongst the community fighting for families, thousands of families who share my story. And we know what it is. We know that this system is racist. We know that it preys upon people of color. We know that it allows the powerful and privileged to do whatever they want with impunity. Now, the question is, what are we going to do about it? And here we have an opportunity to elect me, someone that has walked in the shoes of those impacted by this office, that has gotten major changes done in our city to lead an office, not with excuses, but with solutions. And it's our Haley's Comet. We've had four DAs in the last 80 years. Every single Manhattan district attorney has been a white male. And on the other end of that decision has been our communities of color. So if we've had enough, let's elect somebody who's going to start doing things right for everyone in Manhattan. We have been listening to Tahani Abushi in this conversation in her run for DA of Manhattan. This is a very powerful office. We want everyone to vote. Thank you so much, Tahani Abushi, for spending your time with us this morning. Thank you so much, Gloria. I appreciate you having me on. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. What do you think after this musical break I'd like to hear from you, our listeners, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. You can call and let us know, the New York City area, New Jersey, and on WBAI.org around the world, 212-209-2877, what you think about our conversation with candidate Tahani Abushi. We'll be right back after this musical break. That was New Edition, Mr. Telephone Man, and this is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We have callers on. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. That's me? Yes. 
Okay. Um, my name is Devon from the Bronx. Um, I, I, I just wanted to say one thing. Um, like, um, I'm, I'm, I, I want to vote for her, but she's in Manhattan. I, I wish you could do the same thing for the DAs in the Bronx so we could choose. Um, does she have anyone, any DA in the Bronx that 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 votes like her, that, that, that is like her? Are there any DAs in the Bronx that's like her? Um, who does she recommend? Is, is she connected with anyone in the Bronx? Um, that's what I wanted to say. That's a, that's a very good question. Yes, that's, you know, that and I hope people from her campaign are still listening to um, take down that question and see if there we can get a response. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. I love you. OK, this is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. We just had a conversation with Tahani Abushi, who's a candidate for the district attorney's office of Manhattan. And you're on the line. Good morning. Hello. Good morning. This hello, is Law hello. of the Land. Yes. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Daryl speaking from Brooklyn. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. I'm calling in. I, I listened to the conversation, and it was very, very interesting. Your questions were on point. The only issue I think I have is that her perspective on the uh, public health uh, perspective is not uh, elaborated enough to me. A specific plan, I would like to see her come up with a specific plan. And how is it going to be funded? You brought in the issue of uh, of a seizure that is taking place. That's a good point. I hope that she could say that she will take some of the money and put it into the uh, public health issues that facing uh, uh, New York City, in particular Manhattan, and, and, and expand on those programs. Very interesting. Yes, you, you notice I, I, I circled back to that, you know, trying to get, I think it's an interesting perspective, but yes. it's, it's true. I do want to, I wanted to get more uh, and I tried, but yes. um, I think that uh, you raised a very good point. That's, that's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. And I love your program and keep it up and all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. You know, in, in having these conversations with the um, candidates, what we, we can do on WBAI that no other station has done, no other media, is actually spend this amount of time. Normally, you have all the candidates and there's one question. They get a sentence to answer the question. I think it's very important for us to spend the time, especially for this office, because this is not only an office that's powerful for our region. It's powerful around the country we don't even understand how powerful the Manhattan DA's office is it sets the tone for the DA's around the country and in some parts of the world and they have millions upon millions of dollars from this asset um, um, forfeiture that they have taken everything as she said from the change out of a, a person's pocket that they get arrested on the corner to boats and 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 cars and homes it's, it's an amazing amount of money that's that's transacted through this DA's office um and we have another caller on the line this is law of the land with gloria j brown marshall good morning hello is that me yes it is good morning oh great good morning um yes i, I would have liked to ask her i guess i'm asking you to ask her uh, this is part of the qualified immunity i think uh once a police officer fires his gun uh, seems like he can go somewhere for 
several hours, maybe a day or two days before anything is asked of him. His blood is not checked, what's in his system. I'd like to know her position on that. And just briefly, the other thing is regarding money. Yes, police officers do not have deep pockets, but whatever monies they have in their pension, in their savings, I think that should be dramatically uh, taken away from them if they're found guilty of wrongfully using their police power. I would like to have asked her that. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a very important point as well. Even when police officers are found to have abused their authority and been found wrong and there is a settlement or some other type of damage award given in a civil case, that money is coming out of our tax dollars. That money is paid for from the government. So that is state, local, and, and, and federal money that is being paid to the victims or the families if, the, if that victim has, has passed on or been, their life has been taken. And so none of this is coming out of the pockets of the police departments. And so there can be no real change in policing behavior because they have not been economically affected. The, the worst thing that happens to them is their harassment perhaps of, of their by their friends or neighbors or maybe um, what they've seen in the newspapers, et cetera. But they even then are, are protected, shielded by the sense that they've done no wrong behind the, the blue wall of silence in this, in this club, or I call sometimes um, what it, it, it acts as though it's a, it's a blue mafia. Um, the, the, the sense that uh, that person is not going to pay for the crime uh, financially or otherwise, that's one of the issues that is around the, the qualified immunity. And I'm going to speak more about that um, in our next show. What is qualified immunity? What is absolute immunity? I think it's something that we need to better understand to, to know that uh, a prosecutor has absolute immunity, which means they cannot be sued at all. Not at all. And so even cases that go before the U.S. Supreme Court in which a prosecutor is found to have acted with deliberate intent to hide evidence and therefore gain a conviction. When we have people exonerated, meaning that they've served time in, in, in prison and have been found to be innocent. When they've arrived back into our society, and even if damages have been paid by the government, that prosecutor is still in the job. That prosecutor receives no punishment for what they've done. So how do we break through to change prosecutorial behavior as well as police behavior if it's actually our society and ourselves through our tax dollars who are bearing the brunt of their behavior? So these major issues have to be a part of what we look at in making any type of prosecutorial change. And it should be, in my estimation, a part of national criminal justice reform. I was very disappointed that um, Kalma Harris, who's now vice president, um, when she was a senator, she and Cory Booker and others, but especially that she did not have something in the George Floyd 
justice and policing bill that spoke to prosecutorial misconduct. And so I was very disappointed as a former prosecutor that she did not see the role of the prosecutor's office in allowing police misconduct because it doesn't matter what the laws are if prosecutors refuse to prosecute. I've come to the end of my time, and I'm sorry, I know we have other callers, but I've been told that now I have to wrap up myself. Thank you so much for joining Law of the Land. I appreciate each and every one of you. And if you have an opportunity to become a WBAI buddy, please become a buddy for Law of the Land. And I know we have great shows 24 hours a day on WBAI, but I like my show the best. And I think that if you would support me, I know that I try so hard to support you and trying to bring you information that is empowering and inspiring. But it also allows you to see what you can do. You know, I always give you homework. And so as we go into this June 22nd primary, I want you to find more about these candidates. I know we're looking at the candidates for the Manhattan DA, but as one of the listeners said, we have candidates in other boroughs as well. Take the time and find out about these candidates. They all have websites. Go on to their websites. See what you can better understand. And, of course, they're not going to put the bad stuff on the website. So you're going to have to do a little digging. But I think it's important for us to understand who is going to be in these government positions. They are going to affect our lives and our livelihoods and the lives and livelihoods of our friends and family. So we need to know who's running for office. And then we need to actually vote so make sure that you're registered, and that includes anyone in your life who has been in the system. And if they have a, a background in the system, and we're talking about a criminal background, please let them know that they can vote in this election. This is very important. All they have to be is a resident and to register. Get them registered. Anyone out there, if you have some time in the system and you have not voted, register to vote. It is an empowering thing for you to do. If you have relatives you know who have been in the system and they are not registered, register them to vote. This is important. They need to show the world that they have a voice. The civil death is over in New York State. Civil death is when someone does not have that right to vote because in other parts of the country, that right is taken away for life. But in New York State, you can have it back. All you have to do is register. My time is up. 